The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's episode 34 and we have a special guest this week, often described as the godfather of Spanish cuisine. The chef Jose Pizarro is going to talk Iberian cuisine and, of course, sherry. Plus, our regular window on the world of wine buying. Freddie Bulmer's back for his monthly catch-up. Plus, your medal winners from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Jose Pizarro grew up on a farm in Extremadura, the province in western Spain that runs along the mountainous border with Portugal. It's a long way from his current life as a London-based super chef and restaurateur who's credited with transforming our perceptions of Spanish cuisine. From his first tapas bar on London's Bermondsey Street to a modest empire that now encompasses six restaurants, His passion for sourcing first-rate ingredients has powered his success. He's also credited with helping fuel a resurgence in interest in sherry, as anyone who's been to that wonderful Bermondsey Street bar can testify. Fabulous place to enjoy a world of sherry. Uh, Regular listeners will know I am absolutely mad for sherry. Such is Jose's status back home in Spain that he was one of six judges for the hugely prestigious Copper Jerez fine dining and sherry pairing competition that attracts competitors from as far afield as the United States and Russia. Now in its ninth year, eight teams, each consisting of a chef and a sommelier, battle it out, first in national heats and then at the Teatro Villamata in Jerez itself, cooking live on stage in just... 55 minutes, then serving and presenting their perfect pairings to those six judges. It was really impressive stuff, incredible levels of ambition, with the head judge declaring it to be the most ambitious yet. I'll tell you what happened and the result after we've heard from Jose Pizarro himself, who joined me behind the scenes at the theatre for a chat. And we started by talking about why he decided to get involved in the Copper Jerez. Well, it's, um, I think uh, Jerez, wine from Jerez and Manzanilla are one of the, our treasures, one of the one of tres, tesoros, as we say in Spain. And, um, and for me to come here and, and, and the first thing to learn, because all the time when I'm coming to Jerez, I'm learning, learning, learning from winery to winery, every single wine, um, I, I think it's different, you know? And secondly, um, I just want to to see a lot of creativity coming from another countries. Um, and yesterday, when the when the when we were testing different um, foods uh, and pairing with um, different service, uh, it's learning, it's enjoying, and it's um, made me very happy of uh, seeing how immensely some people over the world um, really enjoying our wines and working together chef and sommelier to create something something lovely and yesterday was amazing i've learned i enjoy and uh yeah it's what i'm here to enjoy <laughs> well it certainly looked very enjoyable but also 
probably quite challenging because you were up on stage, uh, the six judges, mm -hmm. and you were one of those judges, uh, and you were receiving presentations and tasting the dishes, a starter, a main, and uh, a pudding uh, from eight uh, different uh, double acts. Mm -hmm. Um, it uh, it was uh, quite a marathon, actually. Did, did you, I mean, did your, your palate get tired? No, I don't think so. No, no, definitely not. I think your mind is blooming, you know, booming, blooming. I don't know how you say that. Because blooming, it's so, yeah. It's so many things coming on, so many different flavors, so many things, and so many amazing combinations. And you just really want more, you know, because you just see, and you, like we say before, I'm learning. I'm, wow, really this wine going extremely well with this and and definitely some, i know even thinking about that before um was extremely amazing yesterday extremely good and i have a very good time it was tiring i don't you know but uh in the end of the day it was um it was lovely really lovely well i was sitting watching and of course not tasting but mm -hmm. i i could uh, i was certainly salivating because yeah. some of the combinations looked absolutely mm -hmm awe-inspiring. Uh, the standard seemed to be mm. incredibly high. Mm, the standard was good, amazing, really, really good. I think, yeah, it was, I cannot say much at the moment, but yeah, it's, uh, it, was, um, it was, like we say, so much creativity, so much passion and so much love um, for something I, uh, I enjoying, like it's wine from Jerez, from Jerez since I was a little boy with my, with my uncle giving me a glass of uh, manzanilla and fino. <laughs> I'm not going to say the age because maybe it's wrong, but yeah, it's been something I've been enjoying for many, many years. And how do you go about judging something like that when the standard is so high? I think the panel yesterday um, uh, is very well uh, curated um, and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough to say that. <laughs> It's tough, but it's what it is. And we don't know the winner yet. You probably do at the point that we're <laughs> speaking, but it's not announced until tonight. So I'm not going to try and draw that out of you. No. Um, but um, I was struck by um, the incredibly international nature, right down to the fact that the UK was represented by two Italian mm -hmm. chefs and they're cooking with Spanish wine and and uh, international produce, um, uh, but but actually with a, a real focus on 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 local sourcing. So, um, it's what what does that make you feel about the sort of international nature of Spanish cuisine and Spanish wines like mm. sherry? I think Spanish cuisine and Spanish wines and sherry are really fascinating at the moment. I think we are maybe a little behind from other countries. But uh, I think we come here with uh, a lot of passion and a lot of, uh, um, you know, force to, to try to, to bring uh, our knowledge, you know, um, all over the world. And uh, Spain has always been, uh, I think, being conquers around. Um, and this time we really want to conquer the world with, um, with our gastronomy. And definitely it's something that everyone wants to, to learn. Uh, Spain is a lot going on and uh, we want to show and uh, yeah, here in Jerez, I saw so much love for what we do. And those chefs and sommeliers, they were incredible. They really were. And it's been fantastic to uh, taste alongside the event and just be reminded of the extraordinary diversity of, of sherry. Mm -hmm. um, I have to ask you this question. Do you have a favorite style? You know what? 
Uh, now we are chatting together. I definitely can can I have a glass of uh, Amontillado, but another moment, I just no, just sitting somewhere in um, San Lucar de Barrameda, you know, looking the sunset. In you know, I can have a glass of fino with some uh, simple uh, langostinos, and you know, it's the moment. Uh, the, like we say, um, sherry is so diverse from um, fino and manzanilla. Uh, one of the pails and dryers, wine in the wall, until PX, one of the darkest and sweetest wine in the wall, and everything in the middle, that means always is a moment for to enjoy a glass of sherry. You know, it's what happened to me. Always I have a, a, a bottle of uh, fino and manzanilla, sometimes fino, sometimes manzanilla, in the fridge, and uh, coming from work, you know, long day, sitting, just having a simple omelette, maybe, Half a glass is just like heaven, mm. really heaven. You're making me hungry <laughs> and and thirsty now as as well. Um, it is incredible that you can, uh, without having to force it, you can pair an entire meal very comfortably with sherry, can't you? Absolutely, and um, definitely you can. Um, but another thing that people doesn't know much maybe is is cooking with sherry. For me as a chef, it's really inspiring. To, to, to cook with finos, with mantanillas, with olorosos palgotados, with PX. It's really, really amazing. You know, and people need to understand that it's something that they will enjoy very much. Flavors coming from the from the sherry. Yes. You're described quite often as the godfather of Spanish cuisine uh, in the UK, uh, which actually, if you think about the godfather, makes you sound rather scary. And you're, <laughs> you're not really scary at all. But um, but you really have um, uh, you introduced an awful lot of people uh, to Spanish cuisine, uh, to uh, to Spanish wines, to sherry, of course. Um, how did you uh, decide to come from Spain, from Extremadura, where you're, uh, where you grew up? How did you decide to come to London and do what you've done? Look, I was working in Madrid. I was with my lovely friend and mentor, uh, Julio Reollo. Uh, we were doing a quite high level of cuisine, very um, creative. And in that time, in Madrid, it was. Um, in Madrid, in all over Spain, was so much creativity, uh, was so many um, amazing restaurants. But I didn't. For me, it's important to learn from the from the base, you know. And when you are doing that kind of cuisine, you need to learn different cuisines, different technique. And in Madrid, uh, I couldn't find many Indian, many Turkish, many Chinese. Was nothing, no much anyway. And I knew in London you have all of those places. And they told me, look in you want to go there to learn, it's going to be easy. And, you know, it's not many Spanish chefs there neither. And I told my friend, my dear, um, I will, I'm going to be there in a month. And she told me, you're crazy. Everyone said, you know, they are coming to London. I said, yeah. I spoke with Julio, my boss, and I say, Julio, I'm leaving. I'm going to, to, to London to try to learn. I went to my mom and my dad. And I said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to, to London, maybe six months. I don't know for how long. And that's it. I went there. I didn't find any, any job in any of the no-Spanish restaurants. And I found a job in a, in a very good Spanish restaurant that we were doing quite a good level of cuisine. And I uh, was doing well. But I saw that people didn't understand that new cuisine uh, because people didn't understand the base of our cuisine. 
you know, it's no, uh, it's no sangria, it's no paella. Good sangria, good paella is amazing, don't get wrong. Good rice are amazing. Um, but it's more than that. We have, uh, uh, you know, in the olive oils, we have the, the, the Iberico pork meat, the Iberico ham, ham Iberico. We have so much thing, our paprikas. And I saw that everyone, I was with my ham everywhere, and I was saying, taste this jamón ibérico and they said, wow, this is amazing parma ham and that killed me. It was difficult. And I thought, you know what, I really want to stay here and I really want to, to try to do whatever I can for this country to understand what we do, our ingredients. And I stayed there and I was selling, uh, I'm selling a lot of ham now, before pandemic anyway, and I think I'm going to start selling a lot jamón now. And, um, and London is my home. I'm very Spanish, as you can see. My accent is still there after 23 years. But uh, London is my home, and I feel very comfortable there. And I'm so pleased, and um, thanks to, to my little stone in that country and, uh, and other people. Uh, now, really, people understand our cuisine. Incredible Spanish chefs are coming to London, Then I feel so uh, happy to be able to go to the restaurant and eat their food, not only in Spain. And yeah, I'm happy. I'm very, very happy. Great. I mean, when I was first in London uh, in the early 1990s, um, if you went out for Spanish food, you know, you probably ended up, I won't name it, but there's an awful chain that does sort of tapas that doesn't bear much resemblance to what mm. you'd have in a tapas bar in, in Spain. Definitely and not. that was kind of, um, that was about it. Um, mm. Have you seen the sort of uh, the, the, the love, the enthusiasm for Spanish food take off in the time that you've been in London? Totally, totally. Like I say, people do understand our ingredients. People do understand uh, our quality, our philosophy. And that uh, is uh, for me very, very lovely to see. It's not only, like you say, um, change that doesn't represent our cuisine. It's uh, amazing, great chef doing amazing things in London. You know, Kike da Costa just opened last year or the year before, one of the best restaurants that you can imagine, all about rice. And yeah, it's London, UK is ready for Spanish cuisine for many, many years now. It's there, they want more, and, uh, and I'm happy that that is happening, really. And have you seen, similarly, the appreciation of Spanish wines and, uh, obviously, sherry, um, taking a similar kind of uh, path? Mm. Sherry is no longer that kind of a granny drink in the cabinet from one Christmas to another Christmas than you drink warm, and it's not really what representing our service. Now people do understand the diversity and uh, the, the quality and the value for money than is sherry. And uh, yeah, definitely in my restaurant, uh, young people coming and ask for, for a glass of uh, manzanilla, or they are coming to say, can I have a fino and rama? And when I hear that, a young people younger than 30s in the 20s asking for that, for me, is my smile, my face bring a smile. Uh, well, you've played a big part <laughs> in uh, in it's that nice, anyway. uh, uh, sort of education of uh, the British palate, I think, to those uh, wonderful, incredibly sexy drier sherries mm. uh, as well, I think. Um, you're mm. on a mission now to kind of promote the regional diversity of mm. Spanish cuisine. And uh, you've already written um, a, a number of books um, on that uh, particular subject. Uh, what are you trying to do with Spanish regional diversity? 
I think Spain is uh, 17 countries in one. You know? uh, North is different than South, South uh, Andalusia is different than, you know, than the Basque country, than Galicia, than Asturias. And the good thing uh, I can see for a few years now that the British is not just, doesn't want just only Spanish, they want Basque. A few Basque restaurants there now. Um, it's, you know, the diversity is coming because um, they we say, I say, it's 17 countries in one, and it's so much going on that, yeah, they want one day to eat, eat a chuleton, or they want to go and, and eat uh, some Catalan food. It's, um, yeah, we want to show that Spain is not just, you know, Spanish, it's regional, and regional is uh, a beauty, really. And you have another book in the pipeline, I think. Uh, there's clearly a big appetite for your uh, uh, recipes and for your writing. What are you working on at the moment? And I uh, just come back from um, from Spain to, well, I was in Spain two weeks ago, filming, uh, shooting uh, with my mum. Uh, always my mum being big part of my books. And this is, uh, again, all about family. It's all about what I eat with Peter, my partner, at home how I been recreating my mom recipes in, in my house. And yeah, it's all about home and it's all about us really. Again, it's all about Isabel. I think I'm to my mom, I need to pay quite good royalties <laughs> from the book. <laughs> So you grew up on a farm mm -hmm. and uh, I, I saw an interview with you where you talked about um, sort of making friends with the pigs, <laughs> knowing that you're going to be eating them yeah. the following year, which of course, I mean, that's farming. But um, so some people would find that a bit, uh, a bit strange. People who perhaps didn't grow up on a farm. Um, I, I did grow up on a farm, so I, I can kind of relate to that. But um, what did that kind of upbringing um, help inspire in you? I think inspire is only fashionable now. It's not fashionable because it's a lot behind. No, I don't want to say if, uh, to be vegan is to be a, a fashion. It's not. Um, I do believe in things like that, no? And I respect what people want to eat and what is behind that. Uh, but for me, growing a farm is all about products. It's all about the quality. It's all about the seasonality. Uh, I knew that that pig yeah, was my food for the next two years. You know, because the ham of three years, because the ham is going to be hanging there. Um, but it's what it is. For me, it's sad that young people, children, doesn't know where the food is coming from. You know, it's sad that the, the government don't put a lot of money in people to teach people how important it eat and eat well. We don't eat, I don't eat red meat as much as I was eating before, but I need to eat meat. I need to eat a chicken, but I need to eat a good chicken. I need to eat a fish, but very well-resourced fish. You know, I, everything, everything is happening and everything is, is there. We have to be clever. We, it's quite a political thing, but coming from a farm is, uh, is, is, is important than to know and to where we're coming from. Um, I'm coming from, from a farm, when the food was uh, just no one kilometer, was just like a hundred meters. And um, that teach me a lot. That teach me to be respectful with the natura and uh, respectful with uh, the rest of the people. It's how I see farming. It's uh, we need to, to eat well and to eat with our mind. And uh, I also read somewhere that, um, and I could relate to this because I, I grew up with 
you know, fantastic sort of farmhouse food, but I was never allowed anywhere near the Arga uh, to, to do any cooking. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, I was brought up by my, my aunt, who was a superb cook, but, um, but I was, she did not, quite old fashioned, she didn't regard you know, a man's role as being anything to do with cooking. And, and, and actually you learned from your mother, but not literally. My mom, uh, she was wake up very early, helping my dad every single day. Uh, with the farm, with the milky cows, and uh, we have super amazing, great food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, but as you can imagine, working in a farm, helping my dad, was no much time for me to teach me. Not just to teach me, to be in the middle. Mommy, can I? Mommy, for her, was that hour or two hours or whatever for herself to relax, cooking for us. And I was a very naughty boy, not a bad boy, but very naughty. And uh, she was like, please go away, <laughs> leave me to relax. And that is what happening. Um, but maybe you don't be able to, um, to be in the kitchen, but you are able to, you know, to know, the, like we said before, to know what the food coming from. You know how to mix a very good tomato with a very good olive oil, something simple like that. That, you know, the smell of the olive oil, the smell of a, just a tomato from the vine. I think those things, you know, the smell of the churros in the morning, the smell of the stew, is something that you have inside of you. You doesn't maybe see what is going on, but is you are learning, it's what we say before. It's important that the children know where the food coming from. And that, that happened. Then I studied de dentist technician, and one day I, well, decided to, I was waiting for a job, finished my my studies, waiting for a job in Seville, and uh, I started doing some cookery course. And 27 years after, <laughs> you are, and, and in London, uh, enjoying what I do. It's a. Uh quite surprising that you almost became a dentist. Dentist technician, I am a dentist technician by studies. Right. Uh, well, I'm, you know, a little bit old fashioned now, I think. Um, yeah. When I, uh, I was doing that course, they sent me to, because you need to learn from the bottom, no? I was cleaning and I was in the restaurant and I saw, you know what, I had to study because my dad told me, if you don't do something for yourself, you come into the farm. And I didn't want to go, to go to the farm. You know, I saw my parents working really, really hard and I didn't want that for myself. I do love it, but I didn't want that. And I saw to be sitting in a desk, looking to tooth, or be in a kitchen, seeing people, that talking with people, uh, smell, that smell that remind me, my mom doing uh, uh, you know, whatever she was doing, that was absolutely changed my mind. To I really don't want to be in a desk. I love people. I need to, I, you know, I grow with people. I need that kind of uh, intimacy to say, you know, in the kitchen when we spend more time than with your partner, really. And uh, I'm happy. I'm happy. Definitely, I will never see a tooth again. Just mine. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, and I do enjoy what what we are what is happening in London. It's not easy. It's tough. Always been tough, but you need to be positive and you need to to keep going, keep going. 
Talking of keeping going and talking of partners, uh, I read an interview with your partner, Peter, where he said that he is allowed to, to cook for you sometimes, but that you generally can't help but interfere. Is a chef always on duty? Uh, you know, um, this time that we spend more, more time together in the house, and definitely he's a very good baker. And uh, I leave him to do the baking, and he left me to do the cooking. He helped me, he cooks on time, and he does very, very well indeed. But yeah, I think our roles are very clear in the kitchen. <laughs> He's the baker and the, the savory, really. And we, we respect each other very well now. <laughs> you mentioned the pandemic there, and of course um, that has been, uh, I mean, it's still going on, but, it's, uh, but you're, you're back in business, you're back open again. Um, how did you um, get through the pandemic? We closed in March, I think. And um, I, I didn't want to, to be at home crying, you know. I spoke with the team, I spoke with Peter, and we decided to try to do the best that we can, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, we did finish at home. We do, uh, the website was uh, growing. And um, we, yeah, we, we went through, we went through. Uh, been tough, very, very stressful because uh, the, what you don't know is what you make you stressful. And, you know, to see what is happening with my family, what happened with my staff, what happened with my business, you know, being, being uh, in that time was eight years with my business and I thought, well, what is, what is going to happen? And um, it was tough, we went through. Uh, since, the pandem since the pandemic is not over, but we are open now. I opened two more restaurants and um, yeah, the team is really looking forward for more. You know? I think it's teaching us that we have to enjoy. Working hard because we have to, but we have to enjoy every single minute. Good advice. You have six restaurants mm -hmm. uh, now uh, in London and the Southeast. Uh, tell us about the two most recent restaurants, mm -hmm. because people may not be aware of those, uh, the Royal Academy. Yeah, we, someone came to me and said, you know, um, we have this opportunity for you to open uh, under your wing to two new places. I love art. I think um, the kitchen and the art and the museum um, is where I feel comfortable, where I am um, learning, where are my feelings coming. And uh, I was a yes, even I didn't know how, what is going to happen. I said, yeah, I'm very happy to open something here. Uh, it's two different spaces. One is uh, the poster bar, really small and remind me with the poster, no? With the poster is just like the Spanish cafe. Here in Spain, we have the bullfighting poster. And in the Royal Academy, we have the summer exhibition posters. It's, it's lovely, it's really, you know, full of light. And uh, sandwiches, coffees, cake, uh, of course, wine and sherry, very important and mm -hmm. needed. Yep. And upstairs is a grand, it's like the Spanish casino. The Spanish casino doesn't mean the places that you go um, and old fashioned, not that you go and play only. Uh, it's a place that people uh, meet together, you know? And uh, it's, it's huge, the ceiling, I don't know how many meters. It's just absolutely stunning. And we do there, well, we do uh, almost the same in another restaurant, just uh, represent, representing uh, our philosophy of uh, quality, great food, uh, great wines, and that's it, really. I'm very happy there, very, very happy. And uh, yeah, 
good reviews touching it and um, yeah, happy customer. Ah, oh, can't wait to check it out. Um, you've also taken on the pub. You have a pub <laughs> in Isha, which um, given that the pub is that most British of traditions, <laughs> that would surprise some people. Uh, always, I always say um, pubs are like the Spanish local bars. It's the place where locals go and meet, you know? In, uh, in here, well, in Spain, we have the caña, the little little uh, beers and, and in the pubs that you have the, the pines, you know, we have that kind of, um, yeah, a place to enjoy and meet people, meet friends and go with your family. I think it's quite related. We have tapas in my in my pub, but we have a very amazing fish and chip, a scotch egg are absolutely stunning. And uh, yeah, in the beginning, the, the locals, because it's a very local pub, uh, they, were looking to me say what this Spanish guy is gonna do in my pub because they're their pub and um, yeah very happy and uh, I feel uh, I feel like I'm my little local in, in the country and are you getting the locals in Isha into sherry as well oh yeah definitely <laughs> I it's very well um, it's a lovely area where people do know already about good quality of sherry that was for me was quite easy to go there no yeah it's the sherry definitely is uh, is important for me. Final question: What's your favourite British dish? Oof, um, it's so many. Like we say, uh, we are um, look. I'm very proud of the my Scotch egg. You know, pies is a lot, but now we do uh, Scotch egg, and uh, uh, before with uh, with iberico pork meat and uh, jamón iberico and morcilla, black pudding, and that was, you know, cut it, see the jog running out with the Spanish smell, was absolutely amazing. And now we do with the chorizo. And again, you know, when you just cut the scotch egg, you see the egg running and the aromas of pimenton, the paprika coming out, I'm happy with that. You're making me hungry again. <laughs> Jose, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. So those results that we teased you with during the interview, because uh, the judging had by then taken place, but the results were not announced until that night. So he wasn't going to tell me anything. He wasn't going to give me a spoiler. Uh, the UK has won the Copper Hareth twice since its in inception, but this time it was actually Belgium that was victorious, uh, despite a really impressive offering from the UK team, represented by two Italians, sommelier uh, Mattia Mazzi from London's River Cafe and chef Vincenzo Raffone from the Swinton Park Hotel in North Yorkshire. Uh, do look out uh, for that uh, double act uh, because they did an amazing job. Uh, well done to the team from Belgium too, who had a fantastically ambitious uh, pairing. If you want more detail on those uh, pairings, you can head to sherry.wine slash and you can uh, see more detail. You can look at the detailed menus uh, or you can read about the competition in my piece for the buyer. Next up, Freddie is back. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The drinking hour on Food FM. 
You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now it's time for the first of our medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And of course, this week it has to be Sherry. Let's start with a gold medal winner with a whopping 97 points from an historic producer, Williams and Humbert, whose bodega is just on the outskirts of Jerez, a spectacular cathedral-like building that at one stage had the biggest single roof structure in Europe. Amazingly atmospheric place. Dos Cartados, aged 20 years, Palo Cortado, VOS, that's Vinum Optimum Signatum, or very old cherry, really. Non-vintage is a style that's halfway between Amontillado and Oloroso. Cortado refers to the process where the casks that were originally intended for the Solera and Fafino sherry are cut with extra alcohol, forming the basis of the Palo Cortado system. And from this stage, it's aged for a further 20 years. Giving their gold medal, the judges said, an impressive nose with a mineral and saline edge to the fruit. Complex, rich, dried peel fruits, mocha and salted caramel are underpinned by delicious freshness and woody complexity to the finish. Next, a style I adore, a manzanilla, pasada, on rama, pastora from the brilliant Barbadillo in San Luca de Barrameda, of course, which won a silver medal with 94 points, just uh, one point short of the gold, aged for eight years before being bottled to give it the pasada style with a hint of oxidation. On rama, by the way, means it's been bottled straight from cask with no fining or filtration. The Pastora in the name means shepherdess, and it was the first Manzanilla brand launched by Barbadillo in 1827. The judges said of this, Intense nose with nutty herb and citrus to the fore. Sophisticated palate with hazelnut, candied fruit and earthy notes. Delicious and refreshing finish. And let's round off this time with a PX, that's Pedro Jimenez, with 440 grams per litre of sugar. This is the perfect Christmas wine. Harvey's Pedro Jimenez VORS, that's very old rare sherry, non-vintage, won a gold medal with 96 points and also a trophy as well. So the best of the best. Harvey's was established in 1796 in Denmark Street, Bristol, and this was when sherry was imported into Britain in casks to be blended here. The judges said, Intense stellar nose with complex nuttiness, viscous and sweet palate full of rich old tar and prune fruit, but balanced by a brilliant thread of acidity. Layered and complex with an extremely long finish that remains bright to the very end. Sounds delicious. And we'll have three more medal-winning sherries just before the end of this week's edition. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Okay, it's time for our regular insight into the life of a wine buyer with Freddie Bulmer, who buys Australia, New Zealand, Eastern Europe and Austria for the Wine Society. Uh, Freddie, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. Hello. It's nice to be back. As usual, I can't believe it's come around so quick. I don't know what's happened this year. It's flown by. I know. It's <laughs> the same with a monthly column, I can tell you. The editor gets in touch and says, it's time for your monthly column. And you think, I've just written one. Uh, exactly. But that's, that's getting older. So, uh, yeah, that's yes. uh, just the way it goes. Anyway, it's nice to have you back. Um, Thank we've you. We've been talking uh, sherry with uh, Jose there. Um, is yeah. sherry your thing? 
I love sherry. Yeah, do you know sherry is one of those things that every time I I have the opportunity to taste it or you know drink it even better, I was like, oh, I need to buy more of this stuff, and I, I'm so useless at remembering to. But I um, usually try and pick up at least a bottle of uh, of the Unrama when that's released. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, it's something that I really enjoy. Once a year, we do a big fortified tasting at the Wine Society, and of course, sherry features pretty heavily in that. And I'm just always blown away by the by the value. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. Where else would you get something that's had you know eight years aging for yeah. you know, about a tenner? Um, exactly, it, it, that's it's true. Crazy, <laughs> yes. absolutely crazy. Bonkers. And I know what you mean about the uh, the Tio Pepe uh, Fino on Rama. Yeah, it comes out once a year. The Wine Society um, always has it. Um, I always buy it. If you're really lucky, it quite often sells out, I think. But if you're really lucky, there's some left in the bin end sale at the end of the year. Yeah, every Then now it's and a again. super bargain then. It is. Uh, it's insane. It. One thing, interestingly, is that um, my colleague Toby, who's also a buyer at the Wine Society, was the first person to do an Enrama in, in the UK. Uh, he was the one who, who said to the folks at Tia Pepe, hey, can, do you think we could bottle something straight from barrel? We'll make a barrel selection and, and bottle it direct. And, and uh, so he was sort of the... Uh, accidental creator of, of Unrama, which is quite, I think, a, a cool story. <laughs> well, that's an incredible claim to fame because effectively with Unrama, you're going back to the age-old tradition of drinking sherry. So either mm. Toby's older than we think he or is, he's yes. just got great foresight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, okay, well, let's move on to what's been going on in your life. And mm. uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, sustainability, of course, because of the um, COP26 up in uh, Glasgow. Um, and we were talking about it here on The Drinking Hour a couple of uh, weeks ago with uh, Alicia Hansel, who's got together with uh, Jancis um, to target mm. needlessly heavy wine bottles. I know mm. the Wine Society has just announced um, some major moves on sustainability too to help steer members towards greener wines if that's what they want. Mm. Um, is this something that's been in the offing for a while, do you think? Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's been something that we've been talking about um, for quite a while. I think there's been this view um, from from Steve, uh, the chief exec at the Wine Society, for a little while of kind of going, well, let's actually get our ducks in a row and decide on what we're going to do and how we're going to tackle it before we before we kind of put you know a statement out there and um i, I think as you know we've just um, sent an email out which kind of outlines roughly what we're going to be doing but it's certainly a conversation we've been having for quite a long time and there's a belief here that actually um the kind of the csr sustainability side of things is really going to make or break businesses in the in the near future um the comparison that's used is that of of uh, companies that didn't get behind the internet when the internet first kind of started to have a real impact on how we do business. And of course, those companies that were too late to adopt it really struggled in the long term. And we think that the um, the kind of approach to CSR is going to be that kind of new challenge. I think it's really, really important that we get on board and not just for obviously uh, the sake of the business, but for the sake of, you know, doing the right thing for the planet as well, because it's uh, not in the best best state at the moment, is it? Let's be no, honest. it's not. No, it's fair to say that. I think it's an understatement, probably. Uh, CSR, yes, for, for, for those who, who uh, don't know their acronym so well, that's Corporate Social Responsibility. Yes, I that's see. the one. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Doing good things. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, how important do you think sustainability is to your members then? Do you know, I hope it's important. Um, you know, we've obviously done research on that and I'm not completely up to speed with it, but I do know that... 
from from having literally read feedback from from members, uh, which is generally speaking to a degree quite uh, informative. Actually, um, we get we've always had lots of comments about especially things like paper, uh, not using too much paper and, and so on. And, and I think um, heavy glass bottles is one that crops up uh, as well. So, you know, you mentioned Jancis' um, bit of work recently on that. But, yeah, I think I think our members do care. Generally, we do sell to a pretty engaged and, in, and well-informed and, and I think um, in many ways rather enlightened group of people, which is, which is a real pleasure. And they keep us on our toes as well. I mean, we can't afford to be complacent with any of these sorts of things um, because I think that's part of the 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 positive thing about having a, a membership is that you're you know you're held accountable and, and 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 they do openly question what you're doing and say you know can you do this better and the um, impact on the environment is certainly certainly I mean it's certainly a hot topic uh, and I think there's a good chunk of our membership who have really cared about that for a long, long time, long, long time. And that's fantastic. And I think this, you know, COP26 is only going to make more people uh, engage. So, yeah, we, we want to kind of, I guess, reassure people that we are uh, being very proactive, which I think is yeah important. As I understand it uh, from what uh, Pierre Mansour, your uh, box mm. head, head buyer, was talking about on a press tasting uh, actually about six months ago, the, the ambition oh, gosh, is yeah. to have a kind of uh, almost a dashboard, if you like, for members to be able to um, to select the sustainability credentials and, and therefore make um, informed decisions themselves uh, mm. without the wine society necessarily saying you need to buy this because it's greener. You know, this is about uh, mm. allowing uh, your your members to make those kind of uh, choices. You talked about um, the feelings that uh, needlessly heavy wine bottles uh, arouse. Yes. Why do you think it is that those heavy bottles um, still exist? Uh, because, I, uh, unfortunately, the fact is that they give a more premium feel to the product, which is, I think now we see how silly and short-sighted that is, but for a long, long time, uh, producers who've used those have found that they sell and they can charge a higher price because you know picking it off the shelf, it feels solid. It feels like a, a you know premium wine, um, and so I think it's literally just that. And, and actually, it's surprisingly hard to talk certain wineries uh, from certain parts of the world actually as well uh, around to working with a lighter bottle because the thing is we have probably a much more I think it's fair to say much more progressive. Well, it's definitely fair to say much more progressive wine industry in the UK than in certain parts of the world, and we're very lucky for that. Um, and I think there's there's other countries where actually perhaps the wine education isn't quite there yet, uh, and therefore, if you're trying to assess quality, picking up a bottle and it feeling solid and heavy is kind of <laughs> often um, one of the very few things people have got to go on. So. It's not as easy a job to talk people around from heavy bottles as you or I might think or hope. Um, but I think there's uh, obviously some, some great progress because at the end of the day, it's just it's a waste. It's a real waste. You know, mm. it's pointless. <laughs> and just for the record, because you see um, a hell of a lot of wine bottles uh, mm. going across your desk on a daily <laughs> or a monthly basis, uh, far more yes. than I do. Um, is there any correlation between the bottle weight and the quality of the juice inside? Not really. <laughs> Not really. No, I think uh, it's. I think you can you can definitely draw stereotypes. You know, I think when I think of 
silly heavy bottles, SHBs, um, as they are known <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> um, I, I am more uh, sort of perhaps likely to think of South American full-bodied reds. Uh, mm. But I, even that's probably not really fair anymore. Um, but I, I really don't think there's any link between, um, you know, bottle weight and quality. So I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that really you can draw those comparisons so easily anymore. And what about the wineries that you work with? Because mm. one of your key uh, markets uh, from which you buy is New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand has uh, uh, an amazing record on, um, on on sustainability, I think. New Zealand wine yes. um, has uh, really pushed this, the, the, the trade body. And I think something like 98% of New Zealand's wineries are signed up uh, to mm. their sustainability program. Yeah, and I know bottle weights tend to be lighter coming from New Zealand. Yeah. Am I right? Is that your experience? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think actually it's a real pleasure to work with New Zealand because for a long time they've been so ahead of the curve with the whole sustainability side of things. And there's a real kind of uh, desire to work towards being carbon neutral for a lot of wineries and so on. Um, and yeah, that does show in the in the bottles themselves. Uh, I, I think on the whole, New Zealand does use lighter glass bottles. And it's something that they are actively sort of trying to work towards. You know, there's no there's no accident here. It's not just that in New Zealand, they just happen to coincidentally use lighter bottles. I mean, they, they've been fantastic at the whole sustainability thing. And I mean, from my point of view, as I've been asked to uh, relay stories from wineries that I work with uh, about sustainability and um, being carbon neutral and so on, it's so easy to just go, oh yeah, here's another New Zealand one. You know, we've had, <laughs> every time I'm asked, I could pull out a new New Zealand winery. They've got an amazing story about it. Um, but the challenge as well with lighter glass is that it's not, and, and the combination of lighter glass and, and, and thinner cardboard boxes, because that's another thing that people are trying to um, quite rightly and understandably cut back on, is that what we find is that then there's a lot more breakages. Oh. So that's a challenge. So obviously you're sending wine across the world and then when it gets to a business like us, we're then um, delivering it out to people across the country. The challenge then is that you then, yeah, you have to replace a lot of damaged bottles. Things get knocked and break more easily. New Zealand uses a higher percentage of recycled glass, I think, than a lot of other places. So, uh, you know, again, big tick for the sustainability thing, but also that does, I think, um, uh, contribute to, to a slight sort of weakness in the bottles. So then we have to kind of look at it from a much wider perspective and go, okay, so how much of an impact then do breakages have overall? Because actually, if you're if you're saving the world, or as it seems on one hand, by using thin glass, you know, recycled glass, thin cardboard boxes and so on, but so much of it's breaking that it has to be replaced anyway, where, where do we draw the line? And I think that's a bit of work that we've got, we've got that going on at the moment. Um, my colleague who kind of uh, is, is, is running the CSR side of things at the Wine Society is sort of looking into that because we want to be supportive of it. We want people to use as little as possible in that sense um but we also don't want to have to be wasting more <laughs> you know uh in the longer term so it is a tricky one i think there's a lot of gray area in this kind of csr side yeah. of things but um it's not oh, to be explored yeah. it's uh, if i've learned one thing in talking about sustainability over the years it's that few things are straightforward or black and white you know there are mm. always um if you do this then there's a greater risk of that 
and and so forth. So I think you're absolutely right. It's just I think getting the the curve right and generally trying to improve things and and, and do the right thing. Uh, yeah. Do you deal in bulk wine at all? Because bulk wine is very sustainable, isn't it? Because it gets shipped in a yeah. great big uh, silver silver bladder basically in a in a, <laughs> in a tanker and of course the bottling's done at this end yeah uh, which is where yeah. all of the weight issues are it's obviously much more effective to 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 ship a, a great big uh, container with a sack in it than it is um you know <laughs> a, a few thousand bottles instead mm-hmm. um do you get involved in bulk much so there are a few wines that i mean i uh personally buy for the wine society which are bottled in the uk uh, exactly as you described there, there's a few across our range and it's you're absolutely right um it's so much more economical to do it that way uh, what's really a shame though i think and it does, it's a bit frustrating is you do get comments from people saying i don't want wine that's bottled in the uk that's that's inferior quality isn't it you know that means it's worse than if it was bottled in australia or something you know that's not the case at all actually if anything it makes so much sense Certainly at the kind of the, you know, the entry level, as you say, the kind of the bulk level where we're talking about more kind of um, entry, yeah, entry level price points. Juicy and crowd-pleasing wines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's a bit of a no-brainer. I mean, if we're going to be selling, you know, hundreds and hundreds or, you know, a few thousand cases of something, uh, and it's at that sort of level, then you've got the economy of scale, but then you've also got the fact that it's actually better for the wine to be shipped in one big unit. Uh, because, I mean, when you think about something sitting on a boat and going through lots of uh, hot weather, it takes a lot longer for a massive great bladder of wine to heat up and cool down than it does lots of individually bottled bottles of wine. Um, so, you know, it's great from a quality point of view as well. So. Really, it's a no-brainer, and I would love to see people take to that a little bit more because there's so many more positives and negatives. And I guess it's it's just one of those things where there's also a lot of not very good wine on the shelves in the UK, which um, would also have been bottled in the UK, and people put sort of two and two together, inadvertently make five, and think that the reason that uh, it's not good is because of the bottling in the UK, and that's just not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And there are some some really hugely drinkable, very enjoyable wines out there that are bottled in the UK that you pay mm. a little bit more for. But uh, the economies mm. of scale and the sustainability credentials just really, really do make them uh, worthwhile. Yeah, uh, so beyond getting involved in, in sustainability, um, yes. what else has been going on? What's been <laughs> exciting you recently on that uh, tasting table that I Good mentioned? Good question. Good question. Yes. Uh, lots of things, actually. I've been tasting some very nice things recently which is always a pleasure. Um, I was having a bit of a think about this, and one theme that's really stuck out for me recently is 2018 vintage Australian stuff, um, at the kind of mid to, to upper sort of price points. But, I mean, you know, as we both know, and hopefully anyone listening to this knows, <laughs> Australia's quite big. Uh, and, uh, you know, generally being able to, to say Australia had a good or bad vintage in this particular year is very difficult because it's so huge and they can have completely different, uh, completely different time of it from one side of Australia to the other. But 2018 in general was fantastic. And I think it's really been showing in the wine. So I've been tasting a lot of 2018 Australians recently. Um, and there's one wine that really stands out for me. I'm going to make it like a, my, my pick of the month, if I may. <laughs> yes, do. It's, it's delicious. So it's, it's from Tyrrells uh, in, in the Hunter Valley. Oh, who, yeah. uh, you know, a name that... Uh, many will be familiar with because they're very well known and quite rightly and as many people in the hunter valley are they're mostly known for their 
semion, I think it's fair to say. I mean, that one semion is a legendary Australian wine. But mm. in 2018, some of their Shiraz was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And there was um, a wine that I tasted and have subsequently bought, uh, which is their Old Hillside Vineyard uh, Hunter Valley Shiraz. So, again, 2018. And it's up there with some of the nicest Australian Shirazes, Shirai, uh, (laughs) um, that I've I've probably ever had. I think it's just so sort of ethereal and, you know, with a bit of time, a bit of air, you know, an hour in a decanter or something like that. It's kind of like coat roti or something. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So that's my, I'm going to make that my pick of the month. It's not cheap. It's a £27 bottle of wine. But I think versus wines of the Northern Rhone, at the same sort of price, I think it's it's well up there. I mean, it's absolutely delicious. But 2018 Australia, if you see many things around, then pick them up definitely because it's a it's a phenomenal vintage. And actually, a bit of bit of insight for you as well. 2021, um, especially in the Barossa, where I've heard a few reports already, they're super excited about it. So when they come on oh. the market, come on the market as well, do get stuck into 2021 Barossa and Reds because they they're saying it's you know the most phenomenal vintage so i'm really excited to try those but um but yeah because they had a tough time of it in australia in 2020 didn't they Mm. the bushfires all the kind of uh climate uh crises so it's uh they're they're due some good luck really there aren't they yeah they really are they really are so no they said that everything came together really nicely in 2021 which is super so you know they had a, a great time in 2018 as i say 2018 was was good across most of australia really um but 2021 also especially for barossa and, and probably elsewhere i haven't i haven't heard many reports from elsewhere yet but i spoke to a couple of guys in barossa who are really excited about 21 so so keep an eye out is my is my tip of the month as well so we've got a, a wine of the month and a tip of the month <laughs> yeah thank you very much yeah and actually you say you know 27 quid yes that's a, a, you know, a reasonable investment uh, mm. for, for anyone for um, a bottle of wine but then if you're drawing parallels with coat roti um, goodness me what would you be oh. paying for a coat roti more exactly. than 27 quid exactly no it's got that really nice sort of yeah northern red it's like it's got a real freshness to it which is nice mm-hmm. it's not a classic um sort of full throttle aussie shiraz this is much more the kind of syrah uh, end of the spectrum if you like but the, the wine actually the, the the wine's normally only available from their cellar door so you kind of you don't really see it elsewhere you'd have to go to the winery to get it and it's essentially uh, from their old patch uh, vineyard which is kind of their most critically acclaimed Shiraz vineyard with, I don't know, the vines I think come from the sort of mid 1800s, uh, very, very old. Australia's got some incredible old vines, but this wine is essentially the the younger vines from that vineyard. So you still have that same sort of terroir, but slightly younger vines and, and they go into old hillside vineyard and it's just super. So um, I've got Sounds myself a bottle. Delicious, yeah. And, and that's is. for drinking now, is it? Or is that for laying yeah, down? Ju- that's the interesting thing about these 2018s. I think certainly at this sort of, I'd say mid-price point, I mean, it is, it is you know, it's not a cheap wine, but when you think about Penfolds Grange and, and Hill of Grace and so on, a very premium, um, this is comparatively mid-priced. But at this sort of price point, I've found that actually a lot of the 2018s are drinking really nicely, very youthful, very um, vibrant and, and reward decanting, but... There's a real charm, and I've been really enjoying this uh, this Shiraz and, and a few others actually as well. There's some Torbreck 2018s that I think are drinking really nicely, but they'll keep as well. Um, and that's the nice thing. I don't know. 
I mean, maybe this is a um, a bit brash of me, but it's, I think there's a similarity between uh, 2018 from Australia and 2009 from Bordeaux in that the wines are long-lived, but approachable really early, um, oh. which is nice. So, so yeah, so um, at the top end, keep hold, but um, certainly, you know, 30 quid or whatever, you can you can drink them now and keep them. Have some bottles now and have some later. What's not to like? Yeah, best of both worlds. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for your tips. Thank you for your uh, your knowledge um, and expertise uh, <laughs> of sharing you. it with us. And it's the next time we talk, it'll almost be Christmas. God, it will. Well, yes, absolutely. If it's this time next month, it pretty much will be almost, won't it? Blimey. Yeah, we'll be feeling very festive. So we'll have lots we of will. Yes. sleigh bell sounds and lots of things. I'll bring a sausage roll or a mince pie or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Freddie. Speak to you next time. Cheers, David. Speak to you then. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. There's just time before we go for another trio of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame 2021 from the enticing world of Sherry. First up, a gold medal winner, Matutsalem, non-vintage from Gonzalez Bias, a delicious Oloroso Dolce, a blend of 75% Palomino with the addition of 25% Pedro Jimenez for that uh, sweetness. The company was founded in 1835 when Manuel Maria Gonzalez Angel joined forces with his UK agent, Robert Blake Bias. Uh, the barrels of their sherries are often shipped to Scotland where they're used for aging Scottish whisky. Giving their gold medal, the judges said, an intense and giving nose and a rich style showing lots of PX. Superb interwoven palate with complex nutty notes, sweet spice and a lively citrus peel edge opening in the mouth to reveal cake, prune and raisin on the lovely long finish. And if you want to get hold of that, uh, you can find it easily at uh, Majestic Wine. Next, an Amontillado, a lovely style. Harvey's very old Amontillado VORS, non-vintage, a gold medal winner with 95 points. The judges said, very full and weighty example, expressive aromas of aged leather and polish, figs with roasted walnuts and dried golden stone fruits. Savoury palate with fruit richness and complex earthiness, very clearly well made, noticeable alcohol heat but an opulent long finish, they said. The Solera for this Amontillado was established in 1914, so more than a hundred years old and still going. Finally, a cream sherry, Waitrose, number one, rich cream, Thomas Abad, non-vintage, made for the supermarket by Emilio Lustau, uh, one of the uh, esteemed producers in sherry, uh, won a silver medal and 91 points. Uh, the use of Pedro Jimenez gives colour and viscosity, as well as sweetness and roasted raisin flavours, which is uh, blended prior to bottling with Old Oloroso. The judges said of this one, intensity of fruit to aroma, prune especially, hints of evolution with leather showing, umami balanced well with sweetness, good overall depth and pleasing spices on a long lingering finish. And it's time for my own uh, not so lingering finish. Uh, that's it for this week. Hopefully we have made you merry with thoughts of sherry. Uh, that's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Jose Pizarro, of course, and to Freddie Bulmer. And you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And if you want to follow me, Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.
The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. 